So if you didn't know already, what we're doing on uh, the weekends is we are working through the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, and it is basically a history of the start of the church in the first century. And we're going to look at different scenes throughout the book of Acts, and the title for the, for the series is called Upended. Because as I was going through and looking and reading through the book of Acts, what I was realizing is that over and over again, God was upending their assumptions, their preconceived notions about who God was, what he would do, what his plan was. They were constantly being challenged in that. And there's a similar thing, I think, going on right now with the pandemic and the response to the pandemic and everything associated with that. We have had to adapt, and it's challenging some assumptions. Uh, some people have talked about how it doesn't uh, force change, but it accelerates the pace of change. There were certain trends and certain things going on in the world of faith that this has somewhat accelerated. So what we want to do is we want to be faithful to the mission that God has given us to go and make disciples and in order to do that, then we probably are going to have to be a little bit flexible and adaptable. There are probably some assumptions that we have about church and faith that are going to be challenged in the process. And the other thing that you will notice is that has, has anybody noticed that there's a lot of division out there right now? There's division politically, right? There's division uh, about how to approach this pandemic and what works and what doesn't work, whether you should wear a mask or not, what drugs you should take, what drugs you shouldn't take, all kinds of things like that. And then even within church, there is a lot of division. The people and churches handling, approaching things in different way, and it's causing division. And people are separating into camps. And I don't think that, uh, number one, it's kind of an unpleasant thing. And number two, it's not really helpful and effective. So what we're going to do as we look through these different scenes in the book of Acts is we are going to be challenging some of our assumptions about the way things are and also unifying around the thing that is really important. So... If you uh, have the growth guide, you will see that today's message is called, It's All About Jesus, and today we are talking about unity. What, what are the things that hold us together when so many things in the world are trying to divide us and drive us apart? So, uh, and you'll see there that the bottom line is that we must hold Jesus tightly and our assumptions lightly. Hold Jesus tightly, hold our assumptions lightly. And you'll see over and over again in the book of Acts, like I said, that the people were challenged, their preconceived notions, their assumptions about the way things were, and the one thing that held them together was Jesus. So I'm going to read to you from the book of Acts. And again, if you have that page that had the lyrics on it, I've put the scripture there on the back of that, so you can follow along as I read. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, and this is the New Living Translation. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Now, they have just basically said goodbye to Jesus on earth. He has 
gone to the cross, died, resurrected, come back to life, appeared to hundreds of people over the course of about 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven as they watched. So after that, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. These are the 11 apostles, the, everybody except Judas Iscariot. Verse 14, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. You see, while we are most familiar with the 12 disciples, there was actually a larger group of followers, of disciples of Jesus, who were with him, including uh, women, and at this point, including some of his family. Now, before this, his family had pretty much rejected him. There's a scene in the Gospels where they send people to retrieve him because they think he has lost his mind. But when he says, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back to life, and then he does it, it forces you to reconsider what your previous uh, assumptions were about Jesus. And that's what happened to with his family. Verse 15. During this time, when about 120 believers were gathered, were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. Now, Luke is going to give us some more information about what happened to Judas. So that's why it's in parentheses there. Judas had bought a field with the money he received for his treachery. Falling head first there, his body split open, spilling out all his intestines. That's pretty. Uh, the news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem, and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldama, which means field of blood. Picking up the story again, verse 20. Peter continued, This was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken up from us. Now, basically what Peter is describing is the whole range of Jesus' public ministry, from the time that he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist to the time of his ascension. And then he says, uh, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Hold on to that. Remember, that's the key event. Verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, then they all play, prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for inspiring Luke to write down this historical account. I thank you for the way that you have preserved it and protected it so that we have it in our hands 2,000 years later. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, who inspired your word, speak to every single one of us, that you would show us exactly what we need to get from your word today, that you will apply it to our hearts and our lives, and that you would also give us a willing heart to obey and follow after you, to choose your way and not our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. I love being able to hear you guys. So, uh, again, if you have your growth guide, I want to make just a couple of points from this passage. And I called the message, It's All About Jesus, because Jesus was absolutely central to what the, to the beginning of the church. You would think that that's pretty obvious, but I just want to point out a couple of different ways that that was the case. Uh, you'll see at the top of page two of the growth guide, it says that Jesus was the unifying presence for his disciples. And I'm going to come back to this in just a second. But most of us do not appreciate what an incredible feat it was for Jesus to gather together and make a church out of this core group of disciples. They were all over the spectrum religiously and politically. As we'll see in just a minute, if it had been under any other circumstances and you had put these guys in a room, there probably would have been fights, there may have been bloodshed, there may have been deaths. It was that serious. And so the fact that all of these disparate people with disparate political and religious views could come together, united around Jesus, is a testimony to the unifying presence of Jesus. And what happened here was that their allegiance to Jesus and the, his program for the kingdom of God superseded all of those other affiliations and philosophies. And that is a key to the pattern and to the way forward for us as followers of Jesus is to not let any competing philosophy, religious or political, to interfere with our allegiance to Jesus and his, uh, and his program. Jesus was the unifying presence for his disciples. And you'll see there that I picked verse 14. They all met together. They were together in the same room. They were constantly united. There was unity among this, them, among them in prayer. And also you have not only, like I said, the disciples, but you have uh, the women there as well as Jesus' extended family. The second thing that you see there is that Jesus is the interpretive key to the scriptures. There's something that was interesting that was going on here just days, months, weeks, literally, after Jesus' resurrection. All throughout the, the Gospels, which were written, of course, many years after the events, you see the Gospel writers constantly referring to their scriptures, the Old Testament passages. And they would constantly see echoes of foreshadowing prophecies of Jesus and his ministry in their Old Testament scriptures. And then over time, and especially after the resurrection, it was as if 
their minds just lit up with all of the references because they had been reading these scriptures from the time they were little. And then they walked with Jesus, experienced Jesus, saw him go to the cross, go to his death, and then raised again. And it was just like all of these scriptures lit up and they realized that the whole point of the Old Testament was pointing them towards Jesus. And they would reference that over and over again. So there are two things that are happening. One, Peter says, look, what happened with Judas was actually foretold. And they would see in the Psalms, the because uh, that's what they reference, King David, and many of the Psalms are attributed to King David. So they would see in the Psalms the foreshadowing and foretelling of Judas' betrayal. So they would look back on Jesus' ministry and see these parallels and see these prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. But then they also saw in the scriptures, in the Psalms, direction for what to do next. And that's what he references, that there's, uh, that there's a place that should be filled by another. That's quoting a psalm, and you'll see there in the scriptures that I gave you, there's a reference there, so you can actually go back and look at the particular psalm where they were looking. So they had seen in the past all of these parallels to Jesus' ministry, and so they were. it, it was very natural for them to look at the scriptures and see in them direction for the future as well. But the point that I want to make in all of this is that if it had not been for the resurrection, it wouldn't have mattered. You see, unless Jesus rose from the dead, all of those various scriptures and things would have been very interesting to them. But when the Messiah dies and doesn't come back, that's the definition of a failed Messiah. And so the fact that Jesus rose from the dead was the key interpretive fact for them. And if Jesus hadn't raised from the dead, then none of that other stuff would have mattered. And that's an important thing for us to remember that we can we can have within the followers of Jesus different perspectives on certain scriptures. There are all kinds of denominations that have a slightly different take on different things. But we are united around the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that the core elements of the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, who is fully man, who lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died a death he did not deserve, and then was raised to life so that he could extend to us life and grace and forgiveness that we could never earn. Jesus is the key to our theology, the key to our faith, and his Resurrection from the dead is a historical fact on which all of this other stuff hangs. So Jesus is the interpretive key. And then the third thing that I note there is that Jesus' bodily resurrection is the defining event of history. Uh, that kind of builds on what I was just saying. See, when they were given their marching orders from Jesus... They were told, you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness simply tells what they've seen and experienced. And he's saying, that's what I want you to do. And when the apostles were choosing a replacement for Judas, they said, okay, well, that we need somebody who has witnessed, who has experienced all the things that we've experienced. And so, like we said, they outline 
basically all of Jesus' public ministry, from his baptism to his ascension. And then they come back to that key verse that I put in the growth guide. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. But look at what they say he's going to bear witness to, this new apostle. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. See, that's the key event. All the other things that he did were nice and important, and I'm glad that we have a historical record of them. However, again, it wouldn't have mattered to them or to us if it had not been for Jesus' resurrection. Now, uh, so that's kind of an overview of how Jesus was the, the unifying presence, the interpretive key, the defining event in history and in Christian faith. But I want to talk about, before we go, the disparity, the uh, differences among the apostles and how incredibly amazing it was that they were able to unify. In the first century, there were quite a variety of different political and religious philosophies if you've been around church or read the scriptures, then you may be familiar with some of them. You have the Pharisees who were uh, very concerned about following the law and making sure that they did everything exactly the way that they thought God wanted them to do. Uh, they, uh, they get, they're usually portrayed as the bad guys in the Gospels because they were always at odds with Jesus. Because they were what we would call today legalists. They would, I'm not wrapped up here. Um, they would uh, come up with all these different rules that were not necessarily in the scriptures, but that they thought were good, and then expect everybody else to follow those rules as well. You have the Sadducees, who were, uh, I would call them like religious secularists. Uh, that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but they had a form of religion, but their main thing was to get and to maintain and to exercise political power. Sometimes they would be associated with a group called the Herodians. That's named after King Herod, who was a political power, obviously, as well. So they were focused on political power. You have a group that was developing at this time that was probably kind of similar to what you think of with John the Baptist, if you're familiar with him. They were called Essenes. And they figured the only way that we're going to keep ourselves pure is if we totally remove ourselves from any kind of uh, affiliation with anybody else. So they went off and lived in the desert and just followed the rules and only hung out with the same people who believed that the way they did and followed the same rules that they did. Um, we believe that uh, it was an Essene community that uh, stored away what we found and what we refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've heard of that. There are also a group called the Zealots, and in fact you find in the, the list of the disciples that we just read, one of them referred to as a Zealot. Zealots were a uh, revolutionary political party that believed that, you know, in the past God has used violence to accomplish his will, so maybe he wants to do that again. And so they would actually uh, promote and be not opposed to using violence to overthrow the Roman government that was in charge at that time. 
There also developed a party that was kind of a subset of that called the Zikari. The Zikari were named after the Zikars, which, you know, there are different ways to say it. I'm not sure I've got that right, but it was basically a small dagger. And they were political assassins. They were terrorists, basically. And that was how they thought that there were, they were going to accomplish God's will was through terrorism. Uh, there is some suggestion, we're not sure about that, that Judas Iscariot, that, that his last name is a reference to the Zakari. Now, it could just mean, there are a couple of different options. It could mean a man of a city. It could mean city slicker. It could mean that he was a violent terrorist. We don't know exactly. But you had all of these different parties that had different approaches and they were all convinced that their approach was the correct approach. They were all convinced that everybody should do things the way that they should do them. And there was a lot of bickering and infighting among these different groups because they each thought that they had the right approach. And then Jesus comes along. And the natural thing to do is if you're a Pharisee and there's this popular preacher that comes along, you want to claim him for your own and kind of bring him into the fold. And Jesus resisted and was unwilling to be a puppet of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Zealots. And in fact, if you read through the scriptures, what you find is over and over again, they want to either adopt him and make him a part of their group or when that doesn't work, they're going to oppose him, sometimes violently. And in each circumstance, Jesus does not adopt and adapt their perspective. He has critiques, and he has changes, and his program for the kingdom of God is distinct from all of these religious and political philosophies. I think that that should be instructive for us in this time where there is so much division over religious and political philosophies. Because our temptation is probably the same as the first century people. We haven't changed that much. We want to think, and we will use proof texts to show how Jesus absolutely agrees with everything that we believe. And of course, if Jesus lived today, he would be a, and then you fill in the blank with your favorite political party, denomination, religious affiliation, etc. I think it's interesting that in Jesus' day, he was unable to be and refused to be associated and subsumed by any of those philosophies. And in fact, he had a critique for every single one. What that tells me is that as much as I may believe my religious and political philosophy and I want to encourage others along that way, it should suggest a little bit of humility because I probably don't have it 100% right as well. And I have to bring all of my philosophies, assumptions, preconceived notions, to Jesus, to the cross of Jesus, and lay them down before him and let him inform what my religious and political philosophy will be. And it's going to be 
a kingdom of God philosophy. There's an interesting um, passage in the book of Daniel, a vision of how the world would work. And this was hundreds of years before Jesus. And there's this vision, and it's all these different kinds of kingdoms that were going to arise. And it's an amazing prophecy because it basically prophesies hundreds of years of the rise and fall of these major world powers. And the interesting thing is, after the last one is described, there's a different kind. It's First, all these different kingdoms are described as an idol that are made up of these different types of material. And then in the end of the vision, a rock appears, smashes the idol, and grows into a mountain. And that is a picture of the kingdom of God. That there were all of these kingdoms rising and falling, but then there's going to be a rock that grows into a mountain that overcomes them all. And so in the scriptures, the rise and fall of kingdoms and the prophecies and the addressing of that ends with Jesus coming because he established the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's the place, any place where Jesus is king. And so all of these other kingdoms, all of these political philosophies get destroyed and wiped away. It's not that they don't exist anymore. It's that they're supplanted by the kingdom of God. And so my approach and my suggestion for us is that when we encounter all of these different divisions, that we not fall into the trap of thinking that any single one of them is a one-to-one correlation with Jesus and his agenda. To recognize that as tightly held as our beliefs are, we need to put them on the altar and let Jesus form our views and be willing to give them up if necessary in order to follow Jesus completely. And if we do that, if we make the kingdom of God and our allegiance to Jesus number one, then we can rally around and unite around Jesus and his agenda and not fall for what the, the, the thing that's really insidious about all of these other philosophies and religious perspectives is that they can supplant the gospel. They can shove it out of the way and it becomes a false gospel. You see, every worldview, every gospel has three different elements. The first is, what is wrong with the world? What, what, why is the world not as it should be? Second element is, what needs to be done to fix it? How does what's wrong get fixed? And then the third element is, what's my part? What's my responsibility? How do I respond to this? So if you think about the Pharisees, their, uh, their picture of what was wrong with the world was we are under Roman occupation and, and have been destroyed as a nation because we are under God's judgment. Why are we under God's judgment? Because we didn't do what he told us to do. We didn't follow his rules. So their prescription for how to fix that was to make sure that we follow his rules. 
And if we didn't have a rule for it, we would make up a new rule for it and require everybody to follow that new rule because we want to make sure that we're doing exactly what God wants us to do so that we can be free of his judgment. So what's the response that they should have? Well, you're supposed to follow all these rules that we came up with. And Jesus had a critique of that. No, it's it, you don't get to make up your own rules. The, uh, the Sadducees, they're, what's wrong with the world? Well, we, we don't have power. How are we going to fix that? We're going to get political power. We don't believe in the afterlife. We don't think that that's, there's anything but this world. So we're going to invest all of our energy and all of our resources into exercising power in this world. That was the Sadducee and the Herodian party's perspective. So what should you do? Well, you should do everything that you can to get power and not worry about the afterlife because that doesn't even exist. Now, what's the gospel? What's Jesus' program for the kingdom of God? What's wrong with this world is that every one of us is in rebellion against God. We have all chosen our own way. We've all decided, I know better than God. I will be the one that decides what's right and wrong. What's the solution to what's wrong in the world is for us to, it's really the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the penalty for those sins is death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. And so Jesus comes, pays that penalty, and offers us new life. Because we cannot do the things that God wants us to do. We don't have the power. So he's going to forgive us for the past and empowers for the future in the person of his Holy Spirit. And so what is our response? We say yes to Jesus. We say yes to his forgiveness and allow what he did on the cross to count for us personally. We say yes to his leadership and lordship in our life. Lord, I'm going to surrender. I'm not going to choose my own way anymore. I want you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, lead and guide and direct from this point on. The more people say yes to Jesus, give their allegiance to Jesus, the more the world gets fixed and the more that the kingdom of God advances until that day when Jesus returns and he establishes it in its fullness. So, I'm going to encourage you. You don't have to completely dump your your religious and political philosophy, but let's put it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's not make it an, a false idol. And let's not uh let's not require others to bow the knee to our particular philosophy and perspective. My approach is going to be to rally around Jesus, to preach Jesus, to tell the story of Jesus, to encourage people to follow Jesus. I might have perspectives on all those other things that are causing division in this world, but I don't want to put anything, even my closely held political or religious philosophy, in the way of as a stumbling block between someone who needs Jesus and Jesus. Because there's this philosophy out here that, like the Pharisees, if you don't do things the way I do them in church, then you're wrong and you have to be my enemy and you've got it wrong and you're not following Jesus. That's wrong. There's an idea that if you don't vote the way that I do, 
then you can't possibly be a good Christian. You can't possibly be a wholehearted follower of Jesus if you don't mark this box or associate with this party. That's wrong. It's a false gospel. Now, there are certainly better and worse choices, but they are not the ultimate choice. So I don't want to put any stumbling blocks in the way, and I want to treat others with grace and understanding and humility, and I want to tell the story of Jesus. And that's what I'm going to encourage us as a church to do. We're not going to be, as long as I am the pastor of Cornerstone, associated with a particular party, politician, affiliation. We are going to give grace. We're going to hold to the gospel and the essentials of the gospel, but we're going to give grace in matters of conviction. And there are thousands of churches in our country that are doing their gut-level, honest best to do what's best in their particular situation in, with the hand that we have been dealt with. God bless them. They're going to come up with different approaches. I'm not going to judge. There's a passage in James that says you can either obey the law or act like a judge of the law. So as long as you are focused on judging other people, your focus is off of doing what God wants you to do. And it's not your place. God is able to make his servants stand or fall. He's going to judge whether they're standing or falling, and he is able to make them stand. So we're going to go forward with grace. We're going to be focused on Jesus. We're going to allow for there to be a variety of different approaches of the right way to do church with the hand that we've been dealt. And we're going to rally around the unifying presence of Jesus. And that's my invitation to you as our congregation. Number one, if you are not yet following Jesus, if you realize, oh, I've heard of Jesus, I know some of the stuff that you're talking about, but you can't look back on a particular point in time where you declared your allegiance to Jesus, where you said yes to Jesus. I know Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but I want his death to count for me. I want that forgiveness to count for me. I want to be a part of his family, adopted into his family, a citizen in the kingdom of God. How does that happen? It's when you receive Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, that's going to be my first invitation, to say yes to Jesus. Now, you can tell me afterwards. You can text the word yes to our church number, 603-225-2550. This is in your notes in the growth guide. But please do let me know if you're crossing the line of faith. You're going to say, yep, count me in. I want Jesus to count for me. I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want his agenda to be mine. So that we can celebrate that and also resource you for your new life with Christ. And then for all of us, I'm going to encourage you to whether it's interacting with family and friends, the way that you approach social media, the um, different arenas that you engage in, the different worlds that you're a part of, rather than always telling the story of your particular political or religious philosophy, let's tell the story of Jesus. Let's make it all about Jesus. Let's not put unnecessary stumbling blocks alienating people who are far from Jesus because we've got a pet 
political or religious philosophy. Let's rally around, focus on, and tell the story of Jesus. And judge everything by that criteria. Is it what I'm saying? Is what I'm doing moving people towards Jesus? Or is it putting up a barrier and stumbling block that they're going to have to get past to get to Jesus? So John and Joy are going to come up and close us out with a couple of songs as they're doing that. I'll ask you to go ahead and stand. And then uh, I'm going to pray, and with the amen, we'll sing these songs. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to focus on Jesus, to tell the story of Jesus, to be witnesses, give testimony to Jesus. Help us to hold with open hands all of our assumptions and philosophies and allow you to be king and rule over them instead of the other way around. And help us to bring many more people into your kingdom so that we will see more and more people saying yes to Jesus more and more often. We pray this in the name of Jesus, in whose name we gather, in whose name we pray, on whose merits we trust. In Jesus' name, amen.